Once in a while, someone courageous, brave, and fearless will show us their heroic spirit. And it is in those moments that we see how one person can make a difference. One valiant act can change the world around us and make a monumental difference in the way history will be told for years and years to come. On this episode of Quarter Mile's Travel, we tell the story of one man whose bravery over 200 years ago set in motion experiences that we continue to hold as courageous today. And on this episode, we share his story. It's Quarter Mile's Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be lived. I see it all as it's meant to be seen. I am free. Oh, I am free. Every step I take, every place History has stories to tell and heroes to honor. And I love to find those stories that tell us more about the things that we thought we already knew. Hi, I'm Anita, host of Quarter Miles Travel, the podcast that takes you exploring all around the USA based on the designs on the back of a quarter. So what would you do when the world around you is falling apart? Could you pick up the flag and inspire the team to keep going? Well, Sergeant William Jasper did just that. His actions helped win a war and set a nation free. On the South Carolina Commemorative Quarter, issued in 2016 by the U.S. Mint, the reverse side features Sergeant William Jasper racing forward with the slightly tattered but still intact regiment flag. His bravery and courageous act is a story for the ages. I asked Nathan Betshear, National Park Service historian at Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie in South Carolina, to join me to share the story of William Jasper and how his actions paved the way for a fort on Sullivan's Island in South Carolina to become Fort Moultrie and part of many U.S. military operations. We start our conversation with the story of George William Jasper, who enlisted in the 2nd South Carolina Regiment on July 7, 1775. His act of rallying his fellow soldiers happened during the battle on Sullivan's Island on June 28, 1776. As British ships are moving into Charleston, the actions taking place around Sullivan's Island is steady and heavy. When enemy shots from the British Royal Navy bring down the fort's flag, Jasper did not hesitate. He grabs the flag, reattaches it to an artillery sponge staff, signaling to the regiment to fight on. Now, this battle is not over. They fought on and they were successful in defending Sullivan's Island and the Charleston Harbor. What bravery! Action without regard for self, 
but fearless to rally the troops. William Jasper's heroic reaction to run to the battlement and raise the flag, holding it up and rallying the troops, was definitely noticed by his commanding officer. Colonel Moultrie said that Jasper revived the troops and their spirits in his actions. But with such grit and fortitude, I wanted to know more about what happened next for Jasper. I start my conversation with Nathan, highlighting Jasper's legacy. Well, unfortunately, Jasper doesn't make it through the war. Um, after um, the Battle of Sullivan's Island, uh, he, they offer him a commission to become an officer. And he says, well, I really don't know how to read, so I don't think I deserve to be an officer. Um, and he takes part in the Battle of Savannah. And basically, uh, the same thing happens. Um, he, he's sort of out in front, kind of rallying the boys. Um, and he takes um, a piece of um, grape shot, and uh, he's mortally wounded. So a couple of days later, he passes away. So he doesn't really get to see what kind of a hero he really was early in the war. Yeah, he, he doesn't really get a chance to see the full independence and what that all means for what becomes the United States of America. Yeah, it, you know, he played such a big role in it, yeah. and then not to be able to see it, see it through. As Nathan mentioned, Jasper was recognized for his bravery, and President Rutledge presented him with his own personal sword. During the Revolutionary War, Jasper was dedicated to be a leader, continuing to fight for his country. In 1779, he led several very dangerous raids against British pickets and patrols, passing through enemy lines as a deserter. But on October 9th, in 1779, he was mortally wounded while rescuing the regiment's flag. Once again, he moves forward with an act to inspire his fellow soldiers. His commitment was revered and his legacy continues to stand today. Cities and counties all around the country bear his name. He is buried in Savannah, Georgia, and a statue to honor him is located in Madison Square. Now, I wanted to know, who was his commanding officer, General William Moultrie? How does the fort on Sullivan's Island become Fort Moultrie, honoring the general? Nathan answers my question. Who is William Moultrie? William Moultrie is born in Charleston uh, in 1730, um, sort of a prominent family. Uh, his dad is a doctor. Um, and they have a lot of property, so he's sort of, when he's growing up, he's sort of raised to be part of the planter class. Um, because he's sort of, uh, you know, one of the elites in society, um, a lot of times they became officers in the militia. Well, when they needed a fort built out on Sullivan's Island to protect Charleston, um, William Moultrie's in charge, in command of the 2nd South Carolina Regiment, uh, and he is tasked go down to the end where they're building a fort on Sullivan's Island, make sure it's built, occupy it, defend Charleston. Um, obviously, the Battle of Sullivan's Island happens. William Moultrie it, it becomes a national hero. Um, that's in 1776. Uh, 1779, he also repels the British um, down in Port Royal, which is further south of us. Um, and then he's involved in the defense of Charleston in 1780. Um, the defense collapses, uh, really through no part of his. 
uh, he, he, he stays and fights, but the defense collapses around him, and he ends up uh, being captured by the British. Um, and he's held prisoner at um, the Snee Farm location, which is the site of the Charles Pinckney National Historic Site. So he's actually held as a prisoner there by the British. Um, after the war, he becomes the governor of South Carolina twice. Um, at the time, the law said you couldn't have consecutive governor terms. So he actually had two, you know, 1785 to 1787, he's the governor. And then he takes a little break because the law says he has to. So 1792 to 1794, he's the governor again. Um, 1802, he publishes his memoirs of the war, and they're a really popular read. Uh, and he dies in 1805. So originally, he was buried at the family plot in Windsor Hill Plantation, which is sort of uh, a little further north from Charleston. Uh, but in seven, uh, 1978, he's actually um, disinterred and buried here uh, at Fort Moultrie. You know, at the time, uh, it, it was just the fort on Sullivan's Island, and it just, after that, it's Fort Moultrie. Yeah. Everybody knows Fort Moultrie. <laughs> Fort Moultrie was named to honor the military leadership of General William Moultrie. Now, there was also something very unique about the fort on Sullivan's Island, something that in its early days um, helped it survive enemy cannons during the Revolutionary War. Nathan shares a few of those details about the fort. You may be a little surprised to hear this information. Um, well, at the time, um this end of Sullivan's Island had been pretty much logged out, so there was no timber out here. Um, so the most readily available log was the palmetto tree. Um, so what they did was they chopped the palmetto trees down over on the mainland, boated them over to this end of Sullivan's Island, um, and built the fort. Um, what they had was uh, basically enslaved labor that was building the, the fortification. Um, we're talking about um, palmetto logs that are stacked. Um, we know at least for sure seven feet high, um, six, and there was two rows. Uh, and in between, there was a 16, 16 foot gap that was filled full of sand. So the palmetto logs, are, if you've ever seen one, they're very spongy. Um, so between that sponginess and the density of 16 feet of sand, um, the fort was able to withstand a whole lot of uh, punishment. So it kind of would have just bounced back off of uh, the sand and then the palmetto palms. Pretty much. Your, your cannonballs didn't have enough energy to, to come all the way through the fort walls and injure any soldiers on the inside. So, uh, yeah, the, the cannonballs would get stuck in the walls or just sort of bounce right off. I'm assuming there were lots of palmetto palms. I know that is the state tree. Uh, yes, they, they were all over. That is the state tree, um, and that's also the... Uh, you know, how it ends up on the state flag is because of uh, the prominence of the palmetto um, during the Battle of Sullivan's Island. Mm. And what year was that? So that happens in June 28th, 1776. So, you know, right before July 4th, um, and it's one of the really big victories early on in the Revolution. Um, a, a lot of heroes come out of it. William Moultrie, you know, General Moultrie becomes a national hero. Um, Sergeant Jasper, who's on the you know special commemorative quarter, um, he becomes a big hero out of it. During the battle, the flag is shot down um, by one of the British cannonballs, and he jumps on top of the fort, repairs the flagpole, and sort of yells at the guys and rallies the troops. 
and, and he becomes a hero out of it. I asked Nathan to share with us which wars utilize Fort Moultrie. Well, <laughs> lots of them. <laughs> uh, so, yes, you, we, we've had three Fort Moultries, you know, on this site. But so basically from the American Revolution up until World War II, um, there's been a constant military presence here. Um, it's the only time that, you know, shots were ever fired were during the Revolution um, and during the Civil War. But, you know, World War One, World War Two, um, Spanish-American War, I mean, there's a huge military presence out here on the, on the fort. It all starts with the Revolutionary War. Intrigued by the fort's history of being built with palmetto palm logs, the various military operations that have utilized the fort, the fort being named for our, a general. I wanted to know more about the history of the fort. Nathan shares that. So this is actually the third fort that is that has stood on the site. Um, the first one from the American Revolution, you know, was built out of palmetto logs. Um, after the revolution, no one's spending really any money to upkeep it. There really wasn't a need there. Um, and so a series of neglect and storms, you know, we're right on the coast here in Charleston, um, d destroys the first fort, uh, 1791. So uh, 1798, um, tensions are starting to ramp up with the, the French a little bit. Um, Charleston is a huge money-making port, so they put another fort out there um, in the same location, uh, but once again, built out of log. Well, what happens? 1804, hurricane comes in, gone. So the third time they build a fort, the army says, all right, log just didn't work the first time, didn't work the second time, let's try bricks. So 1809 is when they built the current Fort Moultrie, um, and that's, you know, been standing ever since. Um, but, you know, th there's been a lot more history here other than, you know, the Revolution or the Civil War. We had um, one of really the mo one of the more famous uh, people that was here at uh, Fort Moultrie was um, Seminole um, Osceola. Um, he was um, a very prominent leader for the Seminoles, um, captured under sort of dubious circumstances. He, they, he was brought in under a flag of truce. In, this was down in Florida. He was brought in under a flag of truce um, to talk and negotiate, and the army arrested him. Um, and then they end up eventually bringing him to Fort Moultrie um, to hold him here as a prisoner. Um, he was a well-known name. He was very famous. Um, so it actually... He actually had a lot of support. A lot of people thought that the army had done, even though we were fighting the Seminoles at the time, that you know the army had done him wrong. Um, uh, George Catlin, uh, famous painter of you know Native American subjects and portraits, does his famous portrait of Osceola here after visiting him here in Charleston. Um, Osceola uh, catches an infection, um, some sort of like a throat infection. Um, and uh, dies here in 1838. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was stationed here for a little bit. Um, you saw all the big Endicott fortifications that were built for the Spanish-American War. Um, big expansion here during World War I and II, um, you know, and including really during World War II, a large-scale use of the Women's Army Corps. Uh, the, they're called the WACs. And they did a lot of administrative um, 
functions here at the fort, but also worked in the hospital, drove the, drove the ambulances at the hospital. Um, you know, and so this is where you're starting to see the change of like women in the workplace is starting to become a normal thing, right? We see the wax, they're in uniform, they're, they're, they're contributing to the defense of the country. Why can't they, you know, have regular, do other things after the, now that the war is over? So, yeah, a, a lot of really interesting history happens here. Um, some of it really quirky and weird. A lot of history, a lot to keep track of. Yeah, a lot to keep track of, but it just shows you just the importance that the fort has had just in American history with a lot, in a lot of things, not only just wars. Yeah, definitely, you know, and the fort... Even, you know, when you build the fort, it's not just built in, a, in an area that nobody's ever been into. You know, I mean, this is, this is it, an area that, you know, the Native Americans lived in before, you know, Charleston becomes a colony. Um, they're still sort of living here when Charleston becomes a colony and becomes a lot bigger. Um, you know, you're, you're wrapped up into, you know, sort of the, the transatlantic slave trade and the, the use of the pest houses on Sullivan's Island that were sort of um, quarantine stations for um, when the slave ships came and, you know, the enslaved were sick um, and they needed to recover, um, they would bring them to the quarantine houses here on Sullivan's Island um, before, you know, going back into Charleston to, to be sold. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of history, and even if it's not directly tied into the fort, Everything around here sort of weaves mm. in and out of itself, and, and you know, it's not it, it really is. It's so interconnected that you can't just talk about one thing without sort of touching on another, and you touch on another, and it's like, but let me tell you about this also. And next thing you know, you're you're, you're in this crazy interconnected web <laughs> of stories. Well, now that you mentioned that, what about the Native Americans? Who were they that were in this area? And were they involved in any of the fighting? I know in some places around the U.S., some Native Americans were involved in some, some parts of the Revolutionary War. Yeah, so we don't have, you know, any physical, um, specific physical evidence, you know, no shell middens or anything like that that archaeology um, has recovered. But we do know that there were... Um, tribes in the area, especially on Sullivan's Island. Uh, there were three sort of main tribes uh, in the greater Charleston area, the, the Kiowa, the Etiwan, and the Stono. Um, you know, Kiowa might sound familiar for the island and Stono for the river. Um, so they sort of occupy the general Charleston area. Um, but, you know, between, you know, disease, um, the Yemisee War um, is this really early war between the British colonists and the Native American tribes that have sort of banded together to throw out the colonists. Um, it, you know, it didn't work, and it really, between that and disease, just destroyed the Native American population around here. Um, so really, by the time the, the American Revolution comes and the fort on Sullivan's Island is built, there really is not much of a Native American presence here. Nathan mentioned the role that Sullivan's Island played in the slave trade. The island during the 1700s was a quarantine station for ships importing Africans to the colonies with their first port of entry through Charlestown. Pest houses that he mentioned were used for human cargo before moving to Charleston markets to be auctioned and sold into slavery. 
A pest house was typically a brick house measuring 30 by 10 feet in size. It was used for sick and diseased people, both enslaved and sailors, arriving from the voyage. They were housed there on Sullivan's Island to be separated from healthy people. The enslaved Africans remained there until they were considered to be fit and healthy enough for auction. This was usually around 10 days, and then many would be auctioned at the Slave Mart on Sharma Street in Charlestown. It is said that 40% of all enslaved Africans who came to the colonies came through Sullivan's Island and South Carolina. Strangely, and also interestingly enough, Sullivan's Island has been compared to Ellis Island as the entry point for people arriving from Africa. There is a stark difference though. People arriving to Ellis Island were coming by their own choice, while enslaved Africans arriving on Sullivan's Island had been captured and forced into the port. It is a controversial comparison. Some people don't agree. Some people say the comparison is there. It is a very controversial comparison that will be debated for years to come. Some historians have noted that almost half of African-Americans with ancestors who were enslaved in the American colonies have an ancestor who passed through Sullivan's Island. When visiting the island, you will find a place marker and a black iron bench placed there by the Toni Morrison Society on July 26, 2008. It was placed there as part of her Bench by the Road project. I wanted to know if there were any enslaved Africans that were part of the military operations at Fort Moultrie. Um, we do know that um, there were uh, enslaved African Americans out at Fort Sumter mm -hmm. um, during the bombardment um, when the Confederates held the fort. They were out there being used to rebuild the fort uh, under bombardment. Um, in terms of fighting uh, during the Revolutionary War, we don't have a whole lot of information about um, the individual African-American soldiers that were here mm -hmm. um, during the Revolutionary War battle. Um, we, one, of the, uh, one of the most powerful artifacts that I've seen that has come from this site um, is actually came from Fort Moultrie. Um, it was a slave tag. Um, and at the time, um, Charleston ha had a system where you, um, you know, if you were enslaved and you had a special trade or a skill um, and your master hired you out, um, you were registered and you had this tag, metal tag that you wore um, with your registration number and your job um, so that people knew you were you know, you weren't escaping, you weren't a runaway, you were out there with permission. Um, and so there was a tag found out here at Fort Moultrie. Um, I forget the number, I think it's number 245, uh, but it's Porter. Um, so at, at some point he was out here um, either unloading supplies or, you know, unloading baggage for, for one of the officers that was here or maybe that one of the officers that was leaving. Um, and, and his tag becomes lost um, and, and gets found, you know, at, at Fort Moultrie, you know, yeah, a hundred years later. I mean, it, it's really, yeah, it's, it's a very moving and you just see, you hear about these things, but you to see it like right there. 
Um, and, and so that's the most definitive tie-in to Fort Moultrie that I have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it's, and it's a strong one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it brings that person sort of alive. You know they existed. Yeah, you know, you know they existed. You know they had agency, uh, and it's not an abstract concept that you know, you know, being enslaved, like it's it's not abstract anymore. When you right. see these actual, you see these actual documents with names and prices um, that they bring at auction. You see these actual, you know, you see the shackles. You see these tags that were actually worn and touched these people. Uh, you see the fingerprints in the bricks. Um, yeah, it—they're it, it, not faceless people. Mm-hmm. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We don't know what they look like um, in a lot of cases. But this sort of brings them back to us. Um, and you know, as long as we have these things, we can we can remember them and and try to learn more about them. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe one day, you know, we can we can put a name to a face um, and to to an entire life story. Sullivan's Island continues to be the place where Fort Moultrie is homed. I wanted to know how the forts along the U.S. border are connected in terms of protecting our border as well as communicating between each other. Here's what Nathan had to say about that. Yeah, so, you know, the forts were, you know, part of of a long chain um, up and down, up and down the eastern seaboard. First, you know, you're it's called the third system of fortifications. Um, the, the these giant brick forts that are running up and down the coast. Um, later, they're part of the Endicott system of fortifications, um, which is right at the turn of the, um, you know, right in nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Um, really, you're only as connected as your technology could. Um, so early on, you're you're looking at actual messengers maybe semaphore flags, you know, people standing up there wiggling the flags like you see in the movies, um, light signals. Um, later on, you get telephones, telegraphs, and by the time World War II, we've got this large network, um, and, it, and it's all radio. Um, so communication is, is only as good as your, your technology. And it influences, too, what happens to these forts as technology gets better, you know. Um, technology gets better your guns get bigger but then your technology gets so big you've got these you've got these airplanes now and you don't need these big guns to sink ships so all of a sudden your forts change you know they become smaller and more more centralized and it's the one guy with a radio you know can do, can do a lot more damage than mm-hmm. an, an entire civil war fort um you know shooting at wooden mm-hmm. ships in the harbor one of my favorite things in doing quarter miles travel is finding those stories about people, about things or situations that happen. I asked Nathan if he would share some of those stories that are part of Fort Moultrie and Sullivan Island's history. Here's some of the things he had to share. Oh, the, well, the, these, are the, these are the things that make it really fun to go to work. Um, someone, you know, it'll start, someone will ask a question and you just go, what? No, that sounds a little weird. And next thing you know, you know, you're all in on this. So one of the ones I did uh, lately, um, somebody had asked me about uh, a golf course here at Fort Moultrie. And so I was like, a golf course? Like, oh, no, they're, here, they're here to do Army things. Yeah. Um, and, and I started digging into it, and there was an actual golf course um, here in 
on Fort Moultrie um, sometime in the late 1920s. Um, it was built. Uh, I, I've seen the actual newspaper clippings from the Post newspaper where they have the trophies. They played country clubs here in, in Charleston. Um, and now that I know what to look for um, in the World War II pictures, you can actually see some of these, the, the greens. Um, and a really funny story is um, I was doing inventory um, in our archives and I came across a golf club. I was like, wait a minute, does this have anything to do with my golf course? And sure enough, it was found um, in the 70s in an air shaft on top of Battery Jasper. Well, if you look at your World War II pictures of Battery Jasper, there's a green right out in front of Battery Jasper. So I have this scenario in my head that some soldier is doing guard duty and is bored and is chipping long chip shots onto the green Here's the sergeant coming and throws it down the air shaft. That's just my theory, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. Stick with it. Yeah, that yeah. That sounds very likely. Yeah, that, that that's a fun one. Um, you know, for for people that really you know really like books, uh, Edgar Allan Poe um, was stationed at Fort Moultrie for a year uh, under an assumed name, and he actually uh, his story, The Gold Bug, is set on Sullivan's Island. Um, so it, people have a lot of fun kind of matching up the descriptions and in, in, in the story and, and trying to be like, okay, this, I think this is the place that he's talking mm -hmm. about in the story, but he did use Sullivan's Island as his inspiration, uh, while, while he was study, uh, stationed here. So he was a soldier here. He was a soldier here. He was, um, um, he, he joined under an assumed name, um, back in Boston and he thought he would be stationed in the Boston area. But the army had plans for him because the army has plans for people sometimes. And they sent him down to Charleston. So he was down uh, here in Charleston for a year um, with an artillery unit. And apparently he had a very good reputation. Um, he got promoted very quickly. Um, and all his uh, officers um, wrote very glowing evaluations of his performance um, a a as a soldier down here. So uh, really interesting because it doesn't jive with, you know, what we think of later on in life where he, he's got, you know, alcohol problems and things like that where he couldn't hold a job. And, you know, here's, here's young Edgar Allan Perry. That's what he enlisted under, who's a model soldier. And um, he, he's well-read, which is very, you know, unheard of in those days for, for uh, a lower enlisted soldier. So, yeah, um, really interesting. Uh, unfortunately, though, there, there are no buried treasures here. So if you think you're going to come do the gold bug thing, there are no buried treasures at Fort no Sumter. No, no, none of them coming through. Um, I think the, the two other, uh, there are two other really quirky things about the fort that most people don't know about is that um, for one year, um, the army actually changed the name of the fort. So it was Fort Moultrie, uh, 1902. Um, they just decided to change the name to Fort Getty. He was a Civil War hero. Um, but the people here in South Carolina were so upset that they had stripped this, you know, local hero's name off of this mm -hmm. fort. And the, the South Carolina congressional delegation got involved. And there was a lot of backpedaling really quick because that name change lasts, I don't think it even lasts a year. I think it lasts like 10 months. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's a really interesting one, which makes research a little hard. 
um, because unless you know sometimes to look for Fort Getty. It's like a gap. Almost. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're just like, well, what happened here? Well, it's because it's, it's Fort Getty. It wasn't <laughs> Fort Moultrie. Um, and then I guess the last really, really quirk is that um, this wasn't always a national park. Um, after the Army gave it up in 1947, it actually went to the state of South Carolina. Uh, and the state of South Carolina actually considered turning it into a state park. Um, and there are, you know, you can find online sort of like these development plans of the park. And it's more of a park park. Um, and not really the, the fort uh, wasn't like sort of the centerpiece. Uh, in 1960, though, the state... Um, transfers ownership of Fort Moultrie to the federal government. Um, and so, you know, the National Park Service has had it ever since. What about stories about some of the colonels, marshals, generals, um, the maybe well-known people that were part of Fort Moultrie's history? I wanted to know about that, too. Any, um, any little-known things about any of the colonels or anything? I know you mentioned that it was Jasper you said that couldn't read, right? Yeah, so Sergeant Sergeant Jasper turned down um, his his an officer commission because he said he, he, he couldn't read and write very well, so he didn't um, he didn't deserve it. Um, one of the one of the other famous uh, military officers that was here at Fort Moultrie um, was George C. Marshall, um, and he was stationed here right before um, the start of World War II, and of course George C. Marshall becomes famous um, with the Marshall Plan. Um, the whole European campaign, um, and afterwards the re- rebuilding of Europe is called the Marshall Plan, and he was stationed here at Fort Moultrie. With all of this historical information and fun facts, now it's time to start planning a trip to Sullivan's Island and visiting Fort Moultrie. I asked Nathan if he would share just how we can do that. I had a great visit there, so now it's time for you to plan your trip to Sullivan's Island. Um, so our website, which will have the most up-to-date information, is uh, www.nps.gov slash FOSU, that's F-O-S-U, um, and that'll have uh, all of the information um, on our sites, our, our opening hours. You know, sometimes they they shift with tour boat schedules and stuff, depending on the time of the year, um, uh, our, our admission um, here at Fort Moultrie is good for a week, and it is uh, $10, unless you've got one of the passes, and we do sell the passes here, so uh, come on down. Um, but we are open um, normally, you know, seven days a week, um, and if you can come down um, sometime around that, you know, June 28th uh, for our Carolina Day celebrations, they're always uh, a great time. Well, tell us a little bit about the Carolina Day. What, what do you guys do? Um, so during the Carolina Day uh, celebrations, you know, we have a lot of uh, living history set up. Um, so we have uh, cannon demonstrations, musket demonstrations, which are always popular. Everyone loves those. But you get to talk to these living history people that, you know, they're in uniform. They're, they're, they're camped out in, in tents and you get to talk to them and, and see, you know, what life was for like a soldier uh, at the time. Um, and it's just sort of a, you know, a celebration of this, you know, this great victory, you know, in the, in the early days of this country. We will raise the, uh, the Moultrie flag over the fort, um, which is, you know, uh, a very special. It's, it's one of my favorite flags. It's very simple, uh, but, it, but it's got a lot of meaning. And uh, so that is the one that goes uh, over the fort on Carolina Day. 
Can you describe it for us, for my listeners? Sure. Um, uh, if you've ever seen the South Carolina state flag, um, just remove the palmetto tree from the middle, um, and you've got the Moultrie flag, we think. Uh, so William Moultrie describes in general terms uh, that he ordered a flag, but he's not very descriptive. So, so the best we've got now is that there is a crescent in the upper left corner because that was uh, the crescent was part of govern the, the governor of South Carolina at the time, Governor Bull. That was part of his family crest. Uh, the crescent was also um, used on General, Moult- General Moultrie's uh, soldiers' cap badges. So we, we had a, a, a white crescent uh, in the upper left of a dark blue field, and that is Moultrie's flag. Um, that also becomes the inspiration later on for the South Carolina state flag um, when they put the palmetto tree. So this one battle... Um, you know, has a lot of imagery come out of it. it you know, the state flag with the color, uh, the blue is the blue of Moultrie soldiers' uniforms. So, you know, you've got the, the uniforms, the hat badge, the palmetto logs that have, you know, that the fort was made out of and defended Charleston. You know, all of that comes out of this one, one battle. Come on out. We would love to see you all, you know, come out and, and visit us and really kind of soak up some some really important history Uh, we're excited to have you all you know we've you know besides fort moultrie and fort sumter you know we also have the park in mount pleasant which is not very far charles pinckney national historic site uh, which i mentioned you know uh you know general moultrie is is held as a prisoner there um at charles pinckney's farm and you know charles pinckney later goes on to become part of the constitutional convention so like I said, all these stories weave in together, so you can't come to Moultrie without going to Charles Pinckney or Sumter, so come see us. Absolutely. To plan your trip to Charleston, visit the website explorecharleston.com. There you can plan a full schedule of things to see, do, places to stay, and delicious food too. Quarter Miles Travel would like to thank the following people. Nathan Belshire with the National Park Service. Rachel Moss and Ivy Parker with Lou Hammond Group, Explore Charleston's Tourism Office. To learn more about the U.S. Mint State Quarters and Commemorative Quarters, visit their website, usmint.gov. This episode of Quarter Miles Travel is brought to you by Alliance Travel Insurance, your travel buddy to Charleston and to all of the destinations you'd like to visit. And when you're ready for your next adventure, reach in your pocket and pull out a quarter Flip it over and Quarter Mile Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure.